0: This is not something new to you or to anybody who follows boxing, but you realize, oh, this sport is way more fun to follow and write about than any major North American sport. Most sports are pretty diverse in terms of how attracting people from different backgrounds and places, but boxing is just a, entirely a whole nother, you know, stratosphere from that.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Tourist Information. Our guest this week is Rafe Bartholomew. I've wanted to have him on here since I started this podcast. He's a writer, a little younger than me, but somebody that I've admired for a long time—not just as a writer, journalist, author, but but as a, as a person. He's one of those people that when you talk to other writers who know him, um, Mensch comes up a lot. Just a really decent, good guy, and. His work is definitely something that, as soon as it comes out, it's something I always want to visit and revisit. Uh, And then most recently, Two and Two, about his father and McSorley's bar in New York and the loss of his mother. Um, I read it in one sitting. I went to Barnes & Noble and picked it up, and it's just really honest and it's funny and it's compassionate and paints a portrait of growing up in that bar, reminded me a lot of the Tender Bar, in some ways. Um, and just offers some insight into him. So he, it's, he's one of these people that's fun to check in with, because I, I find his take is always really valuable on himself, on boxing, on being a journalist today, and what other people are up to. So it was really fun just to have a little time with him. And I hope you, I hope you enjoy our conversation.
2: Why don't we go into? You're one of three writers at this new outlet, The Athletic. And if anything emerges after this virus in terms of the economy, um, I would be curious to know how you fell into that. Not that you fell into it. How you came to occupy that position and. What it's been like navigating that for you, and then I want to go into your books and everything. But I just thought, why not start with the present?
0: Yeah, no doubt. I mean, and plus, that's the most boxing-relevant thing we have, at least professionally, we can go with. For me, um, I don't. I don't really think that fell into it is too uh, to going going too far in my case. I mean, I. I um, I have obviously, like, I've been around boxing in, a, in various ways since I was working at Grantland, I, where I worked um, two jobs ago from, like, 2011 to 2015. Um, and even though it wasn't my job, I ended up writing about a lot of boxing there because it was the most, it's kind of like the thing that kept me sane in my editing job. It was something that made me feel like I was still a writer. And I, I found that I could still go to a, you know, I could still set up, you know, travel and credentials, and go cover a fight for a weekend, write about it uh, for for the following Monday or whatever, and and have something that felt would still exercise that muscle. Made me feel like I wasn't just pushing pushing buttons and making the the trains run on time for a website. Um, mm. And I it doing that also kind of. Had, This is not something new to you or to anybody who follows boxing, but you realize, oh, this sport is way more fun to follow and write about than any major North American sport because you actually like the the fighters are come from all over the world, come from all over the U.S. You get a true like you talk. uh, I mean, most sports are pretty diverse in terms of how attracting people from different backgrounds and places. But boxing is just a, entirely a whole nother, you know, stratosphere from that um, and the access you get in all those other things. So I really liked it and, and kept a sort of even after Grantland folded in 2015, kept a toe in it, occasionally writing freelance places and uh, on and off working with, you know, my my sort of compatriot Brian Campbell at CVS. Um who you know when he was at ESPN we we did a uh, po- we started doing a podcast at Grantland then when i left ESPN uh because Grantland was a part of that um we did a very strange but fun short lived maybe 8 month snapchat version of our podcast uh, mm-hmm. which was co- we shared the same account and would go back and forth recording crazy things to each other and as a as a content initiative i i think it was a huge success it was really fun but nobody cared so Mm. uh eventually we (laughs) did and we we both had we were both doing other stuff so it just fell apart Uh, eventually you run out of gas with that kind of thing uh so, but then when he moved to CBS and got his own podcast, we restarted podcasting. So I kept a foot in boxing through that. And then when The Athletic, which had already been around for, I think, three or four years before they launched a boxing vertical, when they, you know, they're this subscription, uh, venture capital backed disruptor sports, uh, sports website that on some level, it, look. What's what people love about them is they are um, providing a lot, just tons of red meat sports coverage across the board, and doing it in a way that almost mimics a little bit of the old school beat reporting you would have seen in in sports local sports pages in the past, and also bringing in a little bit of the the new age analysis and the heavy stats and the really wonky stuff, uh, and they, it's 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 just truly enormous it's pretty comprehensive they have in a newsroom even though everyone is remote i think is more than 400 writers at this point so you could get lost in there um and so anyway when they launched a boxing vertical uh the one one thing with them is they have to look for people how did i fall into it they have to look for people who already can pump out or who who have a following in some way Um, Mm. and so luck, I have been lucky enough over the years to accumulate. It's funny. I don't know. I don't know if they're aware of this. I don't know that I, I, anyway, I have a a high enough count on Twitter of followers, which is uh, look over 20,000. That's not much in the grand scheme of things. Nobody is going to pay me for anything on that, but I guess the athletic did, um, (laughs) they, um, you know, and then most of that, I mean, I've looked my, 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 most of that is, Comes from uh, the work I've done on Philippine basketball. My uh, mm. like you, when I, whenever I look at the analytics on my Twitter, which has been over a year, but still, it's mm. like sixty to seventy percent people in the Philippines um, who are also interested in boxing when Manny Pacquiao and other Filipino fighters fight. But it's not exactly I'm not you know you're if you're paying for my Twitter account, it's not necessarily going straight to the boxing uh, hardcore. Although you know I, I, I interact with that crowd, but anyway. I think one of the things they looked for when they were hiring were people who already had some name value in their estimation um who could be out there and help promote itself because everything at the Athletic is paywalled and if you don't and there's no way for a story to catch fire on its own because you can't read it if you aren't already a subscriber um right. So that's I think I think they they saw me and knew that I had the you know Grantland on my resume and that connection and had a little bit of whatever that that um, whatever that conferred upon me uh, and saw me as sort of a, a proven quantity and then of course they they went out and hired Lance Pugmire from the L.A. Times as well and and uh, Mike Coppinger who was breaking news although he had already um, lost his job at the Ring but was still out there breaking a lot of news so they wanted to hire. Two of the best known names in the the news category of boxing. So it's basically, they they went out there looking for people with Twitter accounts and, um, and 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 proven reputations, uh, and it's because when they hit the when they press play on that thing and launch a new vertical, they're trying this. They 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 want everyone to look at that and say, oh, you got these guys. I know who those guys are. I should subscribe. Mm. Um, so sure. it's a business thing and. It's been for me, it's been nice. I I look, I I always I took I, I left the job at Eater to, to begin working at the athletic because I it was always sort of a dream of mine to work as a full-time writer somewhere. And this this was that opportunity. Uh, and and to do it about boxing also was another sort of dream because I thought it, it because just because of all the storytelling and everything, all the options that boxing offers. Um so it's, it's been, it's been fun. I've gotten a chance to do some good stories. I think I'd like to, there, there's a lot, I still have a lot left on my to-do list, which I don't know if I'll ever really get a chance to do, but, um, it's still, it still has been nice to just, you know, be out there writing consistently all the time and not have to carve other parts of my life out in order to do the writing, which was sort of, you know, the last, 10, 15 years of my life before then.
2: How, how stressful, like on the other side of it. I mean, I always try to make this point to people, you know, like meeting Andre Ward and he's just like, why isn't everybody coming out here for a week to spend time with me? And it's like, because boxing writers mainly don't get paid. Like almost everybody covering it is, is working towards a credential and has a second or third job. It's, it's not like Mark Cram, um, using an expense account to take an ocean liner to fights for like 12 grand with Sports Illustrated anymore. How, how So I get like there's a lot of benefits of being a staff writer, but I would be very intimidated at the prospect of having to work as much as you do covering the sport. I would feel anxious and nervous just to meet that kind of quota of material. How, how stressful has it been for you writing cons- as consistently as you do about this game. Uh
0: it's I I mean I I know exactly what you mean. I, I don't know if I process it as, is exactly as stress. I think it is um you just I guess I it's part of any kind of online publication and I think at the athletic we are um a little bit cushioned from the 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 most like vicious, I don't know, vicissit. I didn't mean to get like really alliterative, but the the worst vicissitudes of the internet here uh, where because of the paywall, and there's this expectation that you're going to try to focus on quality over quantity and, and you don't have to do clickbait as much. Um, but at the same time, I have to I'm expected to do to to have basically around ten bylines a month which is a lot
1: (laughs) that's a lot that is Uh, a lot
0: more than twice a week and that is especially I as someone uh, my background is in magazine editing and writing Um, most of the writing I've done before this point in time has been you know reported feature type stuff or or longer essays and that there's no way to do it is just impossible to do that at the clip that, um, is that I'm, that I'm required to, to produce at this point in time. I can do, I have to, so basically I have to find out, find ways to mix in those stories, uh, along with a lot of previews and recaps and sort of the, the day-to-day or week-to-week churn of covering boxing, um, and I, I, find it is fun to write those. I think there are times, look like as a writer, certainly there are times when I'm like, yo, I wish I was doing something else than pre, I mean, I've pre, I mean, I, I take some pride in at least being, t- figuring out ways to, uh, milk something interesting or thoughtful out of some of the fights I've had to preview. I mean, just this year, cause this year prior to the, everything getting shut down, was not that exciting yet, right? There mm-hmm. was, you know, Wilder Fury 2, but before then, I mean, I wrote previews of Gary Russell and Tugstat <laughs> Nyambiar. I wrote previews of Caleb Plant, Vincent Feigenbutz. I mean, there was, and and I, I at least... God. Approaching it as a challenge, or as a like, look, I am going to figure out some way to have some fun with this and entertain my brain, and hope that somehow a reader's brain is entertained as well. You, yeah. there's no other way to to do it but that, at least for me. Um, and um, I don't know. It's it's is is it? Do I look? If if I could turn back time or create some perfect atmosphere in which. You know, writers were allowed staffs were were big enough to have a lot of enough people that not everyone had to write 10 articles a month or, you know, or 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 everyone was patient enough to to allow writers to write two or three times a month and have them really do better work. I would do I I would do that in a heartbeat. But uh, this these these constraints are the same across the industry. They I've I've encountered them at every job I've had really other than my very first job, which was like uh, 12 years ago at at Harper's Magazine when it was the that was the last days of a magazine that did not care about the the, the Internet um, because and that was that was just a a idiosyncratic quirk of our publisher, uh, Rick MacArthur, who Probably should have heeded the advice of of people on his staff telling him to put more on the internet at the time, but he hated it so much that we didn't have to do it, which right. and it was it was lovely. Um, huh.
2: But um, <laughs> but since then
0: I've seen the same thing everywhere else, and you you gotta you gotta sort of pay the piper with some amount of churn, and you can make churn good, you can't make it great all the time but you can make it good and if you make it good you're doing your job
2: well and it's it's interesting because i remember i remember going across trying to do like a big profile on pacquiao i think going into the this i think this was right after marquez four and he was having a fight what was that tough kid that tough mexican-american kid
0: brandon rios in macau yeah
2: yeah 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 the rios fight and going over all the background, because I was like, ah, oh, fuck, like it's a long enough feature that I need to get to tell the story for an audience that might not be entirely familiar with growing up. And I read everything that I could find, and yours was the one where I was like the most concerned with trying to rework it, because I was just like, this is perfect. Like, there's nothing better to add to this or even to to find intersectionality with where I'm going, trying to contextualize him. I think around that time, Roach had said, Freddie Roach had said that he was broke, which I'm sure that you were privy to and people in his inner circle probably had a good idea about. But I don't think that that was, I think he was at a time where it was sort of like Tyson early on, where where you'd hear about these massive paydays and the assumption was just, this guy's on his way to making hundreds of millions of dollars but people in the inner circle were very quick to be like, you have no idea how quickly he's hemorrhaging money and where this is going to end up is going to be pretty, pretty ugly financially for him. And and so my point with this is just I, I always thought once you got this job at The Athletic, how strange it must be in a sense that you were so good at calibrating a well-reported piece that had such a definitive angle, like such a clear take on what it was trying to do and when you're trying to churn stuff out I've had several people with stuff that I've had to do quickly and people say, boy this really isn't up to your standard And I'm like yeah because it was a, a 12-hour turnaround I didn't have three months to work on it like what do you expect it's it, it's odd that readers don't have that sense of sort of how the sausage is made but I, I mean why would they
0: yeah I don't know if I put that on readers um but it yeah, is like- It's unfortunate that, you know, that publications have to put writers in that position because it it doesn't feel good. I mean, none of us like to be out there kind of putting our not quite best foot forward with something. It's not, you know, but at the same time, if that's what the if that's the only thing they're willing to pay you for, you're like, cool. okay, whatever you want. If this is what is valuable to you, I guess this is what I'm going to do. For sure. It's a it's crazy. I actually. okay so. I don't. I don't mean to to side sidetrack us here. Please but, do. Please
1: um,
0: do. I've so so in terms of Manny, I've and this is something you know I've heard you speak about on podcasts and write about over the years. And so I actually have a slightly different view of his financial, I don't know, security slash insecurity. In that, I think that in the in the states we tend to overstate how precarious his position is not because he isn't as reckless as he as he's been portrayed and reported and and proven himself to be whether that was back in the day and he was spending that money on gambling and pool halls and just giving bags away to people anyone who asked and stuff like that or now Um, when he's doing less of that but just giving it away in more of a political way and just having people line up out of outside of his house so he can give everyone a stack of like a a thousand pesos or something, which I'm 20 about 20 us dollars, or it could be 5,000, a hundred us dollars. Um, But it's that he has between the money he's made in boxing and Basically, helping to install himself and his family as a small, not mid-sized political dynasty in the Philippines, especially right. you know in his province in in Sarangani, in in the southern part of the country, he that is that is lifelong wealth as if if he plays it right. Now, playing it right yeah. it, that that can that goes wrong for lots of people, but he if if as long as he has people engaged in politics himself and others in his family that that unfortunately philippine politics tends to be more about um you know uh controlling financial resources and and diverting funds to family businesses that might also create projects for the people but also enrich the family uh, than it is necessarily totally about public service um and while i i, I do believe in his yeah. Uh, he, like I, I I do, do still believe that he wants to help people, but he is he he does it in a very in classic old school, patron you know patron, politics <laughs> style, which is just li- line up, I'll give you cash, and right. it, what, what's funny is I I wonder if I need to reevaluate that because for years I thought of that well that's that's not very sustainable that's not a good way to encourage true growth what is it you're just gonna throw money at people, but. I don't know. That's what I think. That's what I think most of normal uh, people in the United States are thinking or not most, but a lot of people in the United States, the, the progressive minded people of the United States are starting to move towards that, you know, UBI, Andrew Yang type. Look, just give people money and they will do the right. They will, may not do the right thing with it, but they will do it. that. The outcomes could be better that way than all this means tested um You know, oh, well, we think this can only be used for this type, um, you know, bureaucratic, wonkish, um, old school, not old school, but uh, Clinton era, you know, democratic social welfare, uh, if you could even call it that. Um, But I don't know. I mean, Manny, basically, I think he has access to more money than, like, even if he's given away all of his money, he still has access to more money at the time being. Um, And he's he, at the moment, I don't think that's, that's in a huge jeopardy, even if he keeps just, you know, ha- having 50, a hundred people hanging around, get throwing money at everyone and giving money in the street and and all the other things we see him doing all the time.
2: Well, and I think you're, and I think you're totally right. I mean, I I've heard you also on podcasts, correct the record about, I think my glib oversimplification about Pacquiao. I was, I don't, Think that I I went beyond quoting like right. Leon Gas making the Pacquiao movie or Freddie Roach, and some of the people around him. But I think like you certainly have way w- way more nuance to uh, to inventorying what that situation is like. I've never been to the Philippines. My intel was my Filipino barber from ages fourteen to twenty until I no longer needed a barber, giving me the inside on on Pacquiao. But um, but I was still kind of shocked that people were shocked that Pacquiao was broke, especially since that story came at least a couple of years after Pablo Torre did his thing about other athletes going broke. And still it was like, it's impossible that Pacquiao is having financial problems. And I'm sort of like, nobody even knows who Michael Kantz is or what his background is beyond that he's Canadian, so he has to be trusted. But oh,
0: no, no, did anyone? Did you, did you, did people actually say that Michael Kahn's had to be trusted to you? Because if you look at, I mean, he is central <laughs> casting, man. I have I, for years, well, I've I been, been fascinated I with that, totally man, just being like, wow, how did you find this guy? Oh, I know, I mean, I know the story with Freddie introducing him and then regretting it and all that stuff, but Kahn's was just, you could not draw up a better, um you know, a better uh, hanger-on than Michael Kahn's.
2: No, he looks like he's emerged from a Montreal strip club <laughs> smoking players' lights. And he's like, hey, guess what? I have tabernacle. I have this money for many Pacquiao. And, like, boom. He's, he's like, everywhere Pacquiao is is this odd French-Canadian, shady, sinister, just what the fuck is this? Just a black box of a black box situation and the ultimate black box sport of, of no, it was, I, I still don't know what the hell he is. I mean, Freddie didn't know who he was really the background. It was just sort of, well, he's just there.
0: Yeah. I never, I, I mean, I remember I, I spoke to, you know, Gary Poole, the, who bio, who wrote a nice biography of Manny Pacquiao about yeah. it once I, and I was like, tell me about cons, man. I, I've never been able to learn much about him. And he's like, he just he didn't there he did the background was still a mystery to him. He he, under, he sort of did a great job of explaining the role that Khan's played as a sort of a gatekeeper to Manny because part of and this is a, a per, I think it's a personality issue as well as a a cultural thing where um it, it, to shield Manny from having to say no to people, you have a guy like Khan's around to sure. be be your sort of, you know, your your staff Jerk to be mean to say, get the fuck out of here.
2: <laughs> true, true. Um, why don't we switch gears a little bit? To, I, I would like to go into your most recent book, Two and Two. Um, I was just reading over how the New York Times interviewed you for it, and I find it particularly interesting that from one of, I think it's fair to say, one of Joseph Mitchell's most famous stories was covering the bar where a life emerged off of those. Pages in a way with you and your dad. And, and as you mentioned, and I thought it was interesting that it wasn't covered in, in that interview with the Times, is for me what resonated as powerfully as, as the story about you and your dad was, was what happened with your mom and, 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 and how that tied into, as you say, the Philippines and all of that. But I, I was fascinated, and this is something particular with you that I, I'm very drawn to, is your reticence to tell your own story. You're talking about, do I want to embark on something like this? And I don't feel like we hear very much about people who tell a memoir. And yours was very embraced and it was a wonderful book. I really enjoyed it. I found it very moving and at the same time, entertaining and fun in lots of parts too. It had, it had a wonderful mix of components that, that made it so distinctive. But I, I wonder for you embarking on that Executing it and then subjecting it to the public to come back at you when there's a profile on you on the Times and stuff that you know where Obama is going to read about you and your story. He you could have put me
0: on the list, man. Yeah. I
2: mean. <laughs> no, there's only one Gio Tolentino for Obama. Um, but I just I just wonder like that whole thing. Um, there's just so much there, and and I guess where where we could start is like. Um, Signing up to do a book like that,
0: I think in terms of um, telling you know a really personal story, um, I, it's it I, you know I I have been reticent about it over the years and 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 don't and especially because you know I went to journalism school and there's this weird, um, you know they, they drill you with this this sort of over the top uh, never it should never be about you and even when your story is pri- is worthwhile on some level you still think oh it's not about me um but this was you know something i wanted to do you know certainly for uh the bar and for my dad and and uh and the the way i felt about writing about you know my mother who died of cancer when i was 23 um and had had cancer you know when i was 5 years old it came back when i was 19 and uh, right. I guess the way I approached that part of the book was that, you know, I knew it was pivotal, and I'd never written about it before. It's not something I hid from people, but it's not something I volunteer. Like if someone asks me, oh, something of, and it's also something I don't really sugarcoat. You know, it's like if people ask mm-hmm. me something about my mom, I'm like well, she died in two thousand six, um, and she had cancer. Um, they ask me more questions, I will answer more questions, um, but. Uh, it was not. I guess I, though. And look, I, I, I don't. I don't say this because I think that my way of, of processing and mourning is the right way. There is your way is the right way, right? If you, everybody deals with some version of this in their lives, and however you do it is is the right way for you. Um, but for me, that meant I never wanted to stick that as the, you know, four hundred word lead to a story about. I don't, you know, the, the, a basketball game, you know, like, you know, and and try and add some greater importance to a stupid, you know, world title that, um, that, that I never wanted to cheapen it in that way. And I, I, it sounds harsh because I mean, you see, I see people write that way and, and I'm not saying they are cheapening it, but to me, it would have felt that way. Um, so it was kind of like, I'm going to write about this here in this book that means a lot to me from front to back. Um, and it's an important part of that story. But besides that, it's it's it's, you know, it stays there, at least in writing. And it's not something to I, I just I careful about not overusing. It. I never want to feel like I'm exploiting what, you know, like the 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 pain that my family went through um, to, for, for a writing, for, 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 for likes on Twitter, or any kind of little moment of self-aggrandizement.
2: Well, I, mean, I think it's, 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 an odd in, it's an odd environment that we're in right now also where, I mean, in any arena of, of ambition, status is paramount, and there's no quicker way right now than to either be a victim or to champion victims. And as you say, prostituting some of these issues... Oh, my friend Rafe's dad has worked for 48 years at New York's most famous bar. That one of the greatest chroniclers of New York history also made famous. And he struggled with cancer with his mother early on, and she passed away. Cynically, from a marketing perspective, there's no editor in the world who is, and he can write, and he's very personable on camera. This is gold. And yet it's very different if you're the guy living that life about what it really felt like. You know what I mean? Like the, that, that divergence of how an outsider would look at it cynically to package it versus from the, from the inside out yeah. living that life. Um, look, I mean, is their, their job
0: is to sell things. So they're, you, you, they're right. excused for looking at it that way. But I think for me, at least I didn't want to, let myself look at it that way of course you're aware of the the fact that it is marketable that compared to you know a book about Philippine basketball where it took several attempts at a book proposal and basically only having one or two having two publishers interested in even speaking to me about the project um and even then I mean I sort of sussed out that the reason they were willing to do this book with me was they thought it would be fine. And I think they've been actually pleasantly surprised. It's still in print. And, you know, even though at the time there, I encountered so much cynicism about, well, you know, I mean, people saying, you know, I mean, look, this is, this is publishing. You hear fucked up kind of racist things. People saying, oh, Filipinos don't read or they don't buy books. Uh, and people don't care about this subject. Uh, I, I believe that People did. And it turns out that they did. Maybe not enough. I haven't seen a royalty check off of it, but the book is still around. And I think that the the publisher got their money back. But still, I think they, um, I think they looked at it as, well, this guy seems bright and young and he'll probably go on to write something that will make us money someday. So let's let him, let's let him work this out. Um, and, um, and and so I noticed the difference between selling that first book, which had very tepid interest, and the second one, where they where yeah all of a sudden I had ten different meetings with with publishers in New York and people throwing different ideas at me about how to sell it and stuff like that. When and that, that, that felt good. I mean, it felt good in that I was confident that they were going to act, that, that I you know that I was gonna get. The, a chance to write the book. Um, but yeah, you, you notice you, you, and, but it's their job to sell that stuff. And I don't really hold that against anyone. It's just, I I have to, I've also wanted to be conscious of doing it in a way that felt good to me, um, and felt like I wasn't doing it. Look, um, I, I mean, this is, you know, to get into the really nitty gritty, um, sort of writers, uh, I don't know the recriminations or whatever, I wonder if I had been able to finish the book more or less on time in that form, basically before, um, you know, before the 2016 election, when sort of the world's attention or North American attention became focused so intensely for obvious reasons on the Trump presidency. I wonder if the book may have been more of a commercial success, you know, if I could have reached more people with it before then, when maybe there would have been A stronger appetite for this sort of you know for 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 a memoir like that before by the time it came out in 2017 i think it it turned into just nobody you know really the only thing people wanted to read about was some
2: sort of government disaster right well no and i mean i found it i found again i mean this is very inside baseball but like I occasionally, I think you've gone to readings or you've, you've talked to classes or universities and I've done the same thing where you, you have an account of your life and you mm-hmm. have an account of people you've met. I have offered brief glimpses into some of my family background and like when you talked about... Um, I remember like first meeting you and when I saw your face, what you talked about, about the recognition of the gene of alcoholism. I wondered about you if it was in your family from your face because you had publicity photos and full disclosure. Yeah, we had the same literary agent. Not only that, your book proposal is what I based my book proposal on with the Cuba book.
1: I was, nice. your,
2: I was given your book proposal by this agent and she said, this is one of the best proposals I've seen and it's you know a little similar to yours boxing in Cuba, and this is basketball in the Philippines, and I just went, okay, I have no resume. I have no credentials. I did not go to Cuba on a Fulbright scholarship. I do not have these places to market it to when I release it. This guy is a phenom of accomplishment putting out his book. What, why on earth are you giving me this? Like, All this is making me do is just realize I have no place whatsoever in this industry comparable to this guy, Um, so that was funny that that was the first book proposal that I ever read was yours for, for Pacific rims. But with the, with some of that stuff that I was raising before, um, I was very nervous about stuff about my family and I have alcoholism in my family. My uncle just died from it. My dad was struggling with it for a period. And when I read two and two, I was kind of going into it a little bit like, What is it like to relive this creatively? Like, I mean, I think as all artists in a way, a lot of us come from trauma where we suddenly become sort of flies on the wall of our own life to recontextualize our life into something that we can synthesize and metabolize and almost our recreated version of it, reconstituted version of it feels safer than the real experience as we were living it on a certain level. I don't know if that's been your experience, but I think it's been true of a lot of artists and writers that that I've read their biographies. Like it seemed like they needed to escape the the, the experience and then reformulate it in their work. Like I think that was the real genesis of them starting to look at their life from a, a slightly distanced perspective And I wondered how you were going to approach it with such traumatic things, especially like with your with your mom. I remember every kid when I was a little kid who had a parent that that had cancer and being so terrified of how can childhood have this interject? It's because it's it's like cancer is not a spice. It becomes the soup. Right. Yes. And. That was even for me with friends where that had happened, where I wasn't going home to it every day, and I, mean, I thought you handled it extraordinarily well. I mean, I was very moved by it, but I, I wondered how difficult it was in, in just navigating that minefield of your own experience of it, but you're trying to offer that for a reader. You know, many in many cases, mostly readers that you've never met and never will meet, right. and I just wondered, like, was were you happy with the result of that or, or were there some other options that you looked at? I mean, I get people walk up to me and say, y- you, you were writing about being in Cuba while you were married and you didn't mention your wife for a period of time. And I'm like, I know and she knows just because I didn't doesn't mean that I'm not aware of that omission. That omission was very conscious because I don't want to talk about that in a Cuba book. Right. <laughs> so yeah. I just wanted for you. Um, there's, I
0: mean, sure. there's a lot there. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting in terms of, um, dealing with, you know, just sort of drink and alcohol and alcoholism in and, and family. I think on some level I was, you know, I, not on some level quite clearly, I was spared the worst of it because my parents both got sober before I was born. Um, mm. and you know, they actually met, you know, while in treatment, um, So, um, so it was, I, you know, I, I never, you know, I never had to deal with the sort of horror stories that my father has of his father, um, who, you know, remained an an alcoholic really almost to the end of his life. Um, and, um, and so I I think, but that, but it's still, so, so it, it, that that doesn't, but that still kind of creates this specter of something where, that even 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 though you're not seeing the worst of it, you're hearing about what like what would you know like my 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 parents talking about what would happen if they did drink or what they would have like what they would have done to me if they if they were still right. drinking, um, and it's it 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 there's this sort of looming dread about it. Um, it, it that I don't know if that was as I, I honestly in in writing about in writing the book. The one of the tricky parts for me is that, you know, McSorley's is a family business, family business still has always been. In, it's been in different families, but it's always been a, a very insular group of people who are connected to the bar, work there, um, know it well. And. I wanted to write about it without speaking out of place, without, um, you know, saying saying things about. The people who, you know, not just my my parents, but the people at the bar who, in many ways, helped raise me, that was going that they were that they were going to, uh, you know, feel shitty about or dis- or get mad at me for, um, or you know, and that's that's hard to it's hard to do when also being honest, and I, it was I think, right. sort of like, you know, so you end up making conscious decision decisions about. You know, things to omit, things to you know you're you're not going to make anything up, but you are going to i I didn't feel a um I didn't really I felt and this is it's a weird thing to admit as a nonfiction writer, but like my uh, my ultimate loyalty was to these people and to the bar. and oh. i I was committed to writing a true version of that uh, you know like a a a true story about the bar. But also one that didn't necessarily shit on them and, and make them all look as bad, be- like, like didn't air everyone's dirty laundry because that's just not I, I wasn't willing to do that. And I and, um you know, so that, that's that's a, every writer's own decision to make. You can there's a very strong argument that you should leave, you, you, you know, well, no, once you once you make that divide or step over that line and you're writing about is something you are going, your, your only loyalty is to the reader and the story and anything that can advance that, make that more exciting, more juicy, whatever, add conflict, add interest you should go for. Um, that's, I, it's very difficult. That's a very sound logical argument for me. It's just, I, I decided I wanted to come up with a way to write about the bar that, you know, was real, but also wasn't going to cross that line with people I cared about. Um, And in in a lot of ways, that was almost harder than, um, than writing some of the most personal stuff because I knew, I don't know, I, 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 because I, we have a fairly, I guess, one benefit of having been in a pretty tight, small family unit, you know, I was, I have a half sister, but she grew up, you know, in Long Island and and really only we saw each other on on weekends. She's 10 years older than me. Um, so really just writing about myself, my father and my mother that I, I, I and being very close with my dad. I I didn't I wasn't worried about um, upsetting him or making him look bad. And I wasn't and and I wasn't worried about um n- kind of because I sort of decided this was where I was going to write more about, uh, you know, my mother's cancer and her eventual death that that part of it, it was not easy to do. I had to plumb some difficult emotions, but it wasn't, it didn't have the, the, the hard decisions in the same way as writing about people who, you know, uh, while I'm very close with them, it's
2: not like blood close. Right. Well, and I mean, it was kind of amazing, because one of the things you did that I thought was so intriguing, and I, maybe a lot of people listening have done this at some point with their own parents, but your dad gave you access to all of his journals and diaries about coming to New York, and you discover that the first place he goes on day one in New York is the bar where he lives above it and works for 48 years, and meeting a girl for the first time and all that kind of stuff. It's... It is a very interesting experience to to contrast it with your own experiences and see all the similarities you have with a parent, and it humanizes them in a way where they become more horizontal than vertical, which is a little unsettling because I mean these people uh, uh, open so many doors for us into the grown-up world. You know, when you're a little kid, that's really hard to see them that they were a human being struggling with a lot of shit, and and as you say, like. Your dad's relationship with a hardened alcoholic that never went away, and my parents are the same way, that whatever issues I had with them, their struggles with their parents were and the circumstance were a hundred times more uh intense um, I, I say this as we're undergoing a generational pandemic outside our door. <laughs> but but i i I thought like for for you to go through your dad's journals um
1: and see who he was
0: yeah uh, look i'm mean, reading first of all reading his journals was like, like you said it, it it is a side of uh, yeah you see a side of your parents that just i don't even know if they still have access to you know it, mm-hmm. and it's Good and it's point. something that i don't even it's something that I'm sure some people still journal. I don't know. I don't know if you do. I never have. I never got into the habit. I guess not anymore. You, could, you could, you know, someone, this is mortifying to think of, but someone could, I guess, <laughs> access my e- emails someday. And that would be about as close as you could
2: get to that. Uh, or G- G-chat. Or G-chat, yes. right? I guess that's Tao Lin basically publishes fucking books that are just G-chat, I think.
0: I, I have not. I, have, I haven't read them. I have to admit. Um but
2: um nor have i but but he did it i think he did a whole book that was just gchat i thought interesting conceptual idea yes
0: it is um and 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 also strength it's now it's something completely dated right no one is on gchat anymore i'm Uh, on gchat i know but like i (laughs) not many you know only a handful of people will still send me and throw an occasional gchat at me um whereas uh, yeah seven years ago was uh you you would have a dozen of those things running across the bottom of your screen um sure. but yeah encountering my dad's uh i think the thing that stuck out to me most was just like what a what a romantic he was uh you know in his 20s and uh, that he uh, every other page of those journals was about uh, it was funny what a romantic but also what a womanizer because he every e- every other page <laughs> is like like every yeah. like and i what it was the 60s and early 70s so that makes some sense uh generationally but he's out there writing about a different lady like every three days who he's sleeping with and also writing about how he might be falling in love with them like how really you fall in love with this many people Uh like they're all such they all Uh you connected with them that deeply all of them um Uh and it's You know, and then and then like three days later, I mean my favorite one of my favorite parts of that is where it's like a a two sentence entry one day, and it came, you know, after one of these romantic missives, and it's like, you know, (laughs) you know, got the clap, dick leaking, and it's like, okay, well, that's what Uh you get. Um uh but encountering that with yeah, just seeing what what seeing them grow up in a way that you know you obviously weren't around to see is uh it it's it, it's 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 uncanny, right, because it's not the person you've you've grown up around necessarily or or got to know, and you see this this whole other version of them that existed before then before they had to think about being parents and all that stuff,
2: yeah, it's like we have like the a similar hand that's been dealt to us genetically, but how we've played it. And the, like, who we're playing against is totally different. And that's an odd way to, I don't know, put yourself into their shoes about the choices they were making. I, I think about it all the time with my grandfather growing up through the Depression as a logger or a tree falls on his leg and you can't go to work and you've got four kids. And it's like, well, there's nobody to go to to borrow money. How do these people get through these things? And such smaller things just seem... To me, uh, overwhelmingly difficult to navigate. Um, I wanted to I wanted to go into your time at Grantland because I know that, that that site meant a lot to people. I know it meant a lot to you. You're one of the I, you were a founding editor, or or just like a week after it started, you were there or very right. early on. Um, I I wanted to touch upon some of some of the fun of jumping into something like that. With now, I. Th- People may or may not know, but the person who was running Grantland, Bill Simmons, has just sold his his the Ringer empire to Spotify, I think I heard, for a quarter billion dollars. Um, so somebody who's able to generate that kind of attention and enthusiasm and enjoyment from his audience, you're there at this boutique website, which he still brings up all the time with how much he enjoyed being a part of it and working with you guys. So I wanted to just look at all the positive things that happened there, and and presumably how overwhelming it was for you to be one of the main cogs in that engine, and uh, and then just to transition to, as I was sort of researching the website, um, this controversy where where your name was brought up by Simmons with the the Dr. V situation. Yeah. Um, looking back on it these years later, since you left, what what its legacy means to you?
0: Sure. Um... So I got there. Yes, I I, got, I had a strange route there. I guess everyone did at the beginning because it was just this rumored project that was happening. ESPN was giving Bill Simmons his own website. They wanted it to be some uh, high-minded. Or uh, One funny thing, when I first heard it described to me by uh, Dan Fearman, who was also with the site for pretty much the entire run um, and was kind of like the, the day-to-day sort of uh, running the day-to-day of the website uh, for for much of it. Um, and he, when I first time I spoke to him on the phone about it, he said, it's going to be slow food for the internet. And oh. they wanted to publish one great story every day. Um, and you could look at uh, how the site debuted with its almost no visual elements at all on the homepage and publishing really only uh, maybe i don't know 5 to 10 stories a day to by the end prob i think we were publishing on some days our our copy editors would go be yelling at us saying that we we published you know 50,000 60,000 words today um, Jesus. um amazing so um you know to to wit- to sort of be there as it all sort of blew up around that was, uh, was certainly a, a incredible experience. Um, and I got there because a friend of mine who also, we were like the two kind of weird guys who ended up writing about boxing. Cause we didn't, we, we just enjoyed it. We, we thought it was a, uh, you know, we loved, we loved the sport and it was fascinating was, um, was Jay Kang who yeah. was, literally one of the founding editors and when he was supposed to be handling the the sports basically the sports features or almost all the sports at first and quickly realized while they were planning it that there was going to be way more work than he could ever handle on his own and that's when he asked if they could also bring me on board and and i ended up starting work there the um maybe like the i think it was our third day of uh the third day of of publishing uh So, um, and then was there to like the bitter end. Uh, and I think the the, the part of it that's most positive for me that I appreciated most about what I was able to do as a writer and editor was create this atmosphere that was enabled by basically a, not a complete blank check from ESPN, but as close as you needed for it um you know tons enabled by just t- tons of resources for uh to to pursue the kind of sports stories that i liked most you know the kind of stuff that i was most interested in this so whether you know the basically more cultural stories things that were weirder and more mm-hmm. offbeat uh, and things that you could never that Nash that that Sports Illustrated almost never could publish because they were too busy covering just the entire world of sports. So you couldn't really fit them in the big sports magazines, nor could you fit them in the na- in most major national magazines because they they publish three sports stories a year. Um, and so there was this just then there there was this giant wealth of sports story stuff like Philippine basketball and you know, a, a stuff, I, I, I mean, uh, God, it felt like half the stories that we worked on were parts of this, uh, you know, fell fell into that rubric, at least for me, like, especially working on features there as this time went on, um, that that creating a, a place where we were doing that work regularly and, and publishing, mm-hmm. you know, maybe five magazine-length stories in that vein per month, and occasionally, you know, I, and, and having enough time for myself to go step out and write one once or twice a year and and things like that 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 is really the thing that didn't exist before and i don't think has really come back since because other places you know ever ever since then there will be places that will try to oh let's let's throw a little bit of we'll throw a little bit of money at some long form and (laughs) um they do a little bit of it but it just the 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 you know, the, the the money isn't there in the same way. The commitment isn't there in the same way. The editing isn't there in the same way. It's like the, they, they don't it's and it because it's more like it's because it's, it's honestly working there. You see it's not worth it. Right. I mean, from a business standpoint, it takes too many too many man hours and too much budget in terms of it to to turn out one of those stories and a lot of the time you you, there's no guarantee it's going to do better than any single piece of like you just put like put a headline on a picture of LeBron James and that story is probably going to do better than whatever the hell you or I write um so true so true and so I understand why it didn't it wasn't really that that style wasn't is so difficult to keep alive outside of a place that, that wasn't really working with, you know, real, real money or playing with a little playing with house money to some extent, because I mean to ESPN, they could throw that away. That, that's like, that budget was, you know, was nothing. They were still pulling in 40, like bit 40 billion in one year in profits, uh, because of t- their, their, their TV, you know, like whatever, they were getting from during the better cable years before cord cutting really stuck, you know, came in. Um, but, um, Yeah, that was that was the that that's the thing that I thought was really special and loved being a part of, loved working on and writing those stories, Uh, and and the thing that I miss now still, you know, miss as a reader, miss as a writer because I still I I, it is it is hard, you know, even now working at a a very you know a, a really strong sports publication, it's still hard to get to sort of get people on board with an offbeat idea. When you, see, mm. when, you see, when you come in and say, hey, I think this is really interesting. And people are like, yeah, but what if you just like hung out with Deontay Wilder for a half hour and transcribed it? Um, and,
1: right, you know, what right. are you supposed
0: to say? You know, that's that's the game. Um, so that's that that I loved being a part of that for as long as it lasted. And uh, I, I do hope that it, it, it survived. I mean, I know it will survive in bits and pieces here or there, but I would like it to survive in a more sustainable way over time.
2: Well, I, I, and I remember like exactly what you're saying. I mean, you make a perfect point. Like I mean, the Bleacher point model, bleach bleach report of top ten knockouts, top stupidest hairdos, or whatever, just destroying an extraordinarily well-written, well-reported piece where Bleach Report gets bought for hundreds of millions of dollars. And I remember, on the one hand being quite envious, but also just really enjoying the results of like, I remember Jay Kang did the Don King story. And oddly enough, I ambushed on King and I'm in that story because mm-hmm. Jay re- reported on me tr- trying to catch King off guard and saying to him, is your story po- possible in any country but this one? Uh, you know, a very loaded question. And Kang reported that, like, it was a v- vaguely European journalist who was doing it. And I mean, that was the first words I ever said to Kang is, what the fuck? <laughs> Asian? Are you vaguely Korean? Like, like I don't even know what I And I was teasing, but he, I think had three weeks with King to report that story. Didn't he? Like, I mean, if I remember correctly, I remember,
0: I mean, it, you know, there would, yeah, he was in Florida for a long time. And I don't, I don't know how many times, uh, he was, he actually went and met with, you know, with Don King himself, how much of it was just sort of you know, hovering around outside of the Fort Lauderdale offices and stuff like that. But clearly th- there was enough time to just, you know, and there, and in something like that, there would, would there be no deadline. If he needs another trip, he come back, come back, go back right. another
2: time. Right. And I, I just remember just being like, wow, you can do that because what you're describing with, with Deontay Wilder, like generally even a major website, you know, ESPN sends you down to Deontay Wilder's camp, you get 20 minutes. Yeah. And you get to watch him you know, sparring or in training camp, but you're not going to his house. I mean, some sometimes you can. I mean, I think Mark Kriegel still gets that kind of access. But almost everybody, you take what you can get. And it's now more and more and more limited, especially if it's a guy that, I mean, do you really think anybody can get to Tyson Fury in a meaningful way for the next He's- year or so?
0: I think he's also too smart to allow anyone, uh, right? To,
2: to, you that know, too. He's,
0: he he's. I have the couple of times I've interviewed him, he's sussed out what I was thinking, uh, kind of in the before I'd even gotten there. And it's huh. then sometimes he can you know he can he, he he runs hot and cold right. Fury will sometimes be great and play along, and sometimes he'll just act like he has no idea what you're talking about because he doesn't want to help you. Sure. Um, and I I respect that a lot about him. He has this you know uh, just you know it's he's he's not always going to play along and he doesn't need to.
1: Yeah.
2: I liked him. I liked him in person. I mean, I've I always like him a lot. Yeah. He's the worst. Yeah. He's nice. I. I've always tried to be honest to say, I've never seen anybody look so horrible training, but I, but he also has the best right hand I've ever seen in yeah. person too. Like I try to give him his due, but I was not really surprised by the fury fight, even though it was electrifying to watch. Yeah. It,
0: um, it was, well, I don't know, man, That I, I was surprised that fury backed it up. He did exactly. I know you called it. I listened to that. Um, but it was, I, it was, I, I knew what he was saying. I believed that he could do it, but to see him actually to, to say, this is what I'm going to do. This is how much I'm going to weigh. This is exactly how it's going to play out and then go out there and execute it. That is, you know, it's, that was special.
2: It was amazing. And I've, I've tried to predict every one of these fights for like several years on, on the knuckles and gloves podcast. I am 99% wrong uh, you know, once you can get lucky and I didn't know that he would do it. I just thought if he did it, he was capable of doing that. That's yeah. what I did think was, but I mean, that's a long way away from being able to go out and do it because yeah. I don't want to get hit in the face by Deontay Wilder. <laughs> by any stretch. Um, and I wanted to look at the reason I bring up the, the Dr. V thing that I thought mm-hmm. was really interesting. Some people who don't know the context of that, was a fantastically strange story from the outset of Caleb Hannon reporting on this new event, new invention of a magical putter. Um, what, what it's like when you're reporting on a story that turns out to be another kind of story and that there can be real consequences mm-hmm. um, with us leaving the final record of them for the most part with a huge amount of people when they're just living their life and don't have access to Twitter or social media following. I mean, I wondered like when you're the editor there and I was reading Bill Simmons response to that, which I thought was very well reasoned. I was thinking this also happened in 2014. If this happened in 2019, 2020, we're in a very different time now with this kind of, outrage. I don't want to say outrage culture. I mean, maybe that's a little glib, but I just wonder what it was like in its time and what you see now where so many people get canceled. And I just thought like you guys handled an unbearably awful situation. I'm not saying your situation was worse than the, the, the suicide of Vanderbilt, but from the side of being a reporter, when something like this happens, how... I don't know. Just if 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 we could touch on that, and just sort of also where you see situations like this happening now, where it's just like it seems like careers just end as a result of one mistake, even if it wasn't intended to do harm.
0: Yeah. Look, I mean, that was. um, I mean, that. I. I, It was just an experience that I, I. For many reasons. I hope that I, you know, never have to go through again in a lot of ways. I mean, it's going back to be forget, forget the pub before it was well, before it was published. I, um, you yeah, know, when, when I heard from Caleb that, um, you know, Anne v- Vanderbilt, Dr. Dr. V had committed suicide. I figured, I assumed the story was done. I was like, all right, I don't How are we even going to work on this now? This is, you know, um, and I was pretty, you know, because and this is this is I mean, there's a lot of there's this is something that could go on and on and on and on in terms of like how what we could talk about here, because as an editor, um, this was not this was this was a, this was Caleb's first freelance uh, second freelance assignment for a wow. Um huh. and his first one of any length. I think the other one, it was about 700 words. It was, you know, a nice little report. Uh, I forget. it was He he lived he lived in Denver at the time. Um and it was something. And the the original pitch was first was not anything like what the story became because we didn't know where the reporting ended. It was we had no way of knowing where the reporting would lead. Um, the original the original pitch was sort of about uh, a, a more of a like you know two thousand word short feature on a really fascinating woman design astrophysicists, rocket scientists who had designed what some people believed was the best putter in the world, but because it looked so weird and uncon- uh, uh, unconventional, it was, you know, it, it was sort of being discriminated against. And plus she was a, she was an out, outsider to golf. She wasn't one of the, you know, she just sort of showed up, designed this thing and started selling it. And some people swore by it. Uh, and, but most of the, the golf world, Looked at it like it was just some bizarre fad or some piece of junk, mm-hmm. um, and that was interesting. It was like, oh yeah, that sounds great. That's sound, you know really quick, interesting. Has you know a, 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 um, a little bit of a, a, a off uh, uh, like unexpected gender angle, and that like oh maybe they they also don't want to accept her because she's a woman or whatever. Uh, right. a, a, but it was just a it was pretty straight down the middle. You know what you were getting. Um, but then as he began interviewing her and learning more about her life and the putter. And and she behaved strange in some of their interviews and put really unexpected restraints, constraints on some of their interactions. And then he started looking deeper into her and looked into her, you know, the, the educational background and her work history and started finding that the credentials were false. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and, and basically it tur- from there it turned into... From this, it turned into a fraud investigation, um, and it put as as editors and you know as journalists. Whether from my point of view as an editor, his point of view as a as a reporter, it changed into an antagonistic stance. Just in that now I'm going to now we want to find out everything and and unravel this mystery. It turned into a crime story. Um, mm. And is it a is it is it a great is it a grand crime? Of course not. It's someone who is probably defrauded of a, a few hundred um, you know, people who or, or a few thousand people who bought golf clubs and a cut co- and a few dozen investors in this golf co- company. Yeah, like in the grand is this ain't this ain't um you know made off. Um yeah but yeah. but it still was you know it's still it was fascinating and interesting and I and I was and I remember thinking of it as as it turned into this as a it would be this just a fascinating look at the psychology of Of golf and and especially recreational golfers where it's like all you need to you know, the the placebo effect of these putters, right? If you believe it was made by uh, a NASA rocket scientist who tells you it it has the greatest physics possible for putting a golf ball into a into a hole and it and then it helps you putt that much better then well, maybe it's a better putter Um, so that and, and and um, and it sort of was going along at, at that pace until he also, you know, Caleb also ended up discovering through document, you know, through, through pulling court documents that uh, Dr. V had had, you know, lived as a man earlier in her life um, and had, you know, was in some involved in some 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 criminal and civil cases uh, prior to then. So she this was this was. Uh, but so i think and, and that became a whole new like sort of i think this was uh, the, the the big there so uh, the way this the story was eventually um sort of processed and, and and criticized and picked apart um some some of it i think is was you know, I, I, some of it I, d- I don't, I don't agree with. The thing that I, the the big error that I that I know that that I think we made was viewing it as a crime story and then telling it as a crime story, mm-hmm. and and basically ignoring the gender aspect of it. Um, now right. there are some like inside baseball reasons why we had to do that because one, we didn't have access to her at this point. You know, we're we're, we're investigating her for fraud she's not going to sit down and tell the same reporter who's threatening her, not you know her the 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 sort of situation the the fraud she's running um about her identity and her life and and reveal that the 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 gender side of her story so we didn't have that story and it felt to me as the editor inappropriate to um, to speculate, to just pretend like you know, to, to to just say, oh, this is probably what went on in her head, why um, um, over the course of all these events in her life, which uh, was a pretty eventful life, um, right? And so that so but so that led us to to treat it really as a straight up and down crime story, a who done it. This is these are the events that happened, um, and kind of blinded us to the gender side of it, be in a way that. You know, in- let us add some like a few lines that that were insensitive in the read that they wouldn't have been insensitive in a crime story, but they were insensitive insensitive in a in a in a crime story about, um, you know, about a transgender woman who who con- committed suicide. Um, but so much of Dr. V was it was impossible to know. She I mean, even there there are some in- there there was an interview after the fact with her partner who said that, you know, she she ne- she rejected the the entire label of transgender um and wasn't you know was not it was i mean how she i don't know how she thought about herself but i don't think anyone really i don't think anyone who spoke about the story after the fact did and um oh. while she was while while the reporter was going while caleb was reporting it um there were moments you know she wrote and we knew that I, there were there was an earlier version of the story, that where where you know because it had gotten into court papers, we had learned that she had attempted suicide earlier in her life, and uh, I think I remember at that that during in that draft before she had committed suicide, I was, I, I remember not wanting to include that because it was too much it was not it was not really relevant to this crime story it was uh it was just lurid and it felt wrong um and then a couple months later she does take her own life or and and then it felt like well in if this is still we, at first when you know i remember when she when she killed herself thinking this was done we're not going to do this um because that's just how i thought it didn't, it didn't feel, no, I personally had no interest in seeing this through. Um, right. I, it was just such, it was so shocking. And, um, even though I was further away from, and that's a weird position, that, that's one of the weird things about some of these online editor jobs is you're working with a freelancer you've never met, you know, you, you have some <laughs> trust in, So true. but so you true. know, not, and, and there's just not enough time, you, you know, you don't, you don't have the, you're working as well, you know, working on stories in a dozen different places at the same time, as well as with staff writers, as well as with freelancers. And you aren't able to give the kind of counsel or whatever the day, the the sort of daily check-ins that um, you hear about when writers for the New Yorker or the times magazine, they show up on, you know, a pod, on the long form podcast to talk about their process. And that process doesn't exist for, unless you work at those really great publications where you're having constant conversations and, and all that. It's sort of just like, you know, you sort of give people, you say, all right, shit, sounds good to me. Go for it. And then right. let me know when you're done. Um, and right, I had same. more contact with Caleb than that, but it still wasn't, it, it wasn't the kind of thing where, I had any clue. I I didn't see it coming. And I was like, are you, I just couldn't believe it. Um, and also obviously, you know, you feel comfortable, you, you feel culpable because even though I, I, I do believe that someone you, it is, it's, I, I, and I disagree with all the people online after the fact who said, who who tried to do straight causality, who tried to say you killed this woman. Um, because that, takes away we know no one knows what's going on in the person's mind when they make that decision you hope you hope you don't want anyone to have to, to 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 do that um but she you know i i i it's also offensive to presume that you know exactly what what was what anyone was thinking at that moment um and i think um but at the same time i'm not i'm i i'm not it's, I th- also think it's crazy for us who are working on the story to bury our heads in the sands and say, well, we don't know for sure so you know who knows uh no I, I if you ask me, I do believe that our reporting added to the stress the 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 idea that whatever she had built that this you know that even if it was a fraud if, if it was wrong, that still you know that that stress knowing that that this was going to come out someday um. I believe that it, that it contributed to her decision to take her own life. And I felt on some level guilty for that. Um, and so I, I, when it happened, I thought the story was done. Um, but I guess, you know, and I, I told, you know, the, the other, the sort of editors above me on the site, what had happened and said, and kind of said, well, all right, I don't know I think this is done. Um, and You know, they said, well, just take, you know, relax, take your time, see what happens. Don't, 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 you know, you don't have to make any decisions yet. Um, and I guess over time, you know, a little while later, um, you know, Caleb was still interested in writing and I sort of talked myself into the idea that it was for, um, you know, that, that like, well, he, he was deeper in this than I was and I wasn't going to abandon him in, in that process so that we would do it that way. Um, and we sort of saw this story out and, and it was read, it was the most vetted story in the history of Grantland before publication. Wow. It was read, it was read by every single top editor on the site. It was read by, um, top editors at ESPN, the magazine and ESPN digital. It was read by ESPN lawyers. And, hmm. uh, through all that vetting, we, you know, we obviously still missed a, the, this huge blind spot, which was, you know, we, 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 we sort of had blinders on and treated it as a crime story when it would, that was not the only thing going on. Um, and there was a part of me that I could, I, I didn't feel like I, I expected it. I remember when it published, I expected controversy because I still thought, look, this is like, we showed the work. This is done. This was done, uh, I guess by ethical standards, uh, as far as we understood them at the time. But, the outcome is still tragic and and probably it's very hard to not believe that the reporting played a role in that tragedy. So I expected um, I expected it to be like something people would talk about in a journalism class. Um, and I expected mm. people to be upset because it upset me working on it and, and, and all of that. Um, but it got even weirder because the first three days it was a... Um, it was celebrated it was uh, you know immediately shared on all the big long form long uh, story what's the other one uh, long, long reads, reads long yeah. reads all the aggregators picked it up and people were tweeting wild stuff oh what a holy shit story um, and i was frankly pretty shocked that fewer people were didn't didn't immediately latch onto you know the, the tragic side of it and, and and think was it right to do this period Um, but, and then three days later, it just, it just turned, um, and going through that was certainly scary, uh, from a, you know, from more from a personal, like, oh God, what's going to happen to all of us now point of view. Did I, did I just put everyone's jobs in jeopardy by working on this story? Um, worried about the writer who, you know, put an honest effort in. And we, you know, we tried to support as best as we could and, and probably, I don't know, I still don't know what the, the best decision would have been. Because on some level, not publishing it, it feels like a, um, you know, it feels like trying to bury bury the, the truth of what actually happened. Right. Um, and in that, because, you know, she, Dr. V killed herself before publication, months before publication. Um, and we, what were we uh, like uh, to, to drop this, to to kill the story right there might've been the safest play for Grantland, but it also just feels then, then it feels more like you are, you, you, everyone in, in in-house realized oh shit, we just, um, you know, we just contributed to this woman, to a tragic suicide. Let's walk, let's, let's, let's drop this hot potato and walk away. Like that didn't feel like necessarily... An ethical way to look at it, either. I think that the, the the argument against that is because of the high rate of suicide in the trans community. Having a story out there that could trigger more people um, is is probably the argument that it, that outweighs the sort of putting everything out there version. I still I don't know for sure. I, I, I'm still torn on that decision. I still it still seems to me like just walking away from it um, would have been dishonest in its own way, even if even if it never created any. Um, you know, complication or or consequence for the, for the publication. Um, but yeah, it was a, it, it was, um, it was a really difficult thing to go through. Look, the worst part about it is someone died. Like that, I, that was when I felt worst. I mean, I've, after that, I worried about losing my job. I worried about becoming, you know, ostracized or canceled and all of that stuff, even before it became sort of a, a term in popular culture. Mm -hmm. Um, but the worst part of it were the, were the two days, you know, the, the, the week after we learned that someone had killed herself, it was just, it was especially, um, not having known her well enough to, to have seen it coming or felt like, like, like when, when could we have pulled back if, if that would have changed anything? Um, and I, look, we don't, we will never know.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a funny one. I, I thought of the story actually before we were talking because Jeff Mayweather just died. and Oh, Roger. Oh, sorry, ro- roger, roger, <laughs> roger, I'm sorry. I did a story about Melissa St. Ville, who, who he attacked. And I was very struck by the way that that was reported. And I felt very angry and I think self-righteous that put, he put his hands on her. What the hell does that mean? I kept wondering what that means. Is that Chris Brown? Cause that's the last time I'd heard that expression. And when I talked to her and read the police reports, it was choking her until she was choking or coughing up blood and his hands are on her throat as blood is coming up that she's choking on. And the only reason that stopped from being a murder was the police literally pried him off of her. And so getting her to have that on record so that anybody who would assume, who, like there, there was actual a, a lot of media attention of this where people on Twitter were saying, you know, just really vile, vitriol. That bitch was sleeping with him. This lying bitch is, is just trying to get money, shaking him down. And I was just like, we need to get her to say what happened. We need the police report to verify it. People need to shut the fuck up and stop speculating about an incident where there's clear facts? And why are all of these journalists covering the story just repeating this vague put his hands on her or an allegation of something? Like, why is it just more clear? It seemed like it was just fostering this kind of attitude that here's another gold digging woman in a weird situation and they were mocking that she was a female fighter And had no money and was living in his apartment. She's there rent free. Clearly, there was some kind of quid pro quo. But even when that article came out, or rather, it was a a short video for Vice. The response was nothing but um, like ninety percent vitriol against her. Was just still like, why won't she shut up? And I was thinking like on social media. I felt quite angry to see Roger, all of this RIP. It was very much like Kobe in a very minor way where he was such a good guy. He was such a good trainer. He was so nice to interview. And I'm kind of like if he did this one incident where there's no real explanation of why he did it, how many more were there like it from a family that has this huge reputation for assaulting women Shouldn't there just be a little more than an asterisk with this guy about his history? And I don't know what the right way to play that stuff is. My my wish is that it protects women, but at the same time, I can see, you know, from from all accounts with Kobe Bryant, I I absolutely believe he raped her. I think it was a grotesque situation. I think the way they handled the trial and character assassinated the woman alleging the rape was despicable leaking her name and all the death threats and everything but by every account i've i've heard from people who really follow basketball and like kobe he really did become a much better person <clears throat> and do i think that nobody is ever allowed to cheer for him again because of a you know this incident i i don't know i don't know what the answer is and these are very complicated things to report yeah uh, i mean
0: I think uh, a couple of these, these, you know, these, these, these situations, uh, Roger, whether it's Roger Mayweather, Kobe Bryant's death, I think one thing we learn is that people as a whole care and, uh, you know, I think we actually knew this already, but people are selfish. People care more about what these figures mean to them. I don't know if that's some mass failure of humanity or whatever, but it, it, it's real. You A lot of the time, you and I think I feel this myself as well in a lot of cases, especially with celebrities, with people who are essentially abstractions to us. We, we, we don't know right, them. Right. We have no real, we have ideas of them. We feel like we know them. They mean things to us, but we that's it. Um, so knowing what they have done to other people in their lives it's very hard to make that real and feel that in the way as deeply as whatever they've meant to us, whether it's Kobe Bryant's work ethic or, 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 you know, greatest moments, inspiring us to do things that, that mattered to us in our own lives uh, as, as they, as he really did for tons of people um, yeah. or, or just, and think in my case, uh, speaking as someone, you know, observing Roger Mayweather on so many episodes of 24 seven. And as this very, you know, as as this sort of he became a character. Um, and it's it's hard to really, really feel on the level that a something the assaults that that are that serious deserve. It's hard to feel that in the in the in the, the way that one should or if you really are trying to be honest, I don't know if there's an answer to it because uh-huh. I still, you know, I, I still, oh, uh, you know, I still that's even even though I'm aware of what Roger Mayweather and Kobe have been either accused of or have done. Um, I still, you know, it's still not the first thing that comes to mind for them. I'm I, it's not something I block from my mind. It's not something that I say is not mm-hmm. part of the story. Um, and I think that's at the very least, I think that that's the thing that has upset me a little bit in whether it's Kobe or with, 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 with Mayweather, um, you know, don't yell at people who do ex- say that this is something to bring up because it is it is part of their lives you can't just and and it's not a, it's not a, it's a non trivial part it's it's a really uh it, it and and just at least be able to for a second also put your in the shoes uh, put yourself in the shoes of someone who has been abused who probably the thing that resonates most to them about some of these figures is not the funny things they said on 24/7 or that time they were in the corner like talking, you know, telling, saying some awesome line to Floyd, or you know, or or the pass to Shaq in the 2000 Western Conference Finals Game Seven, like like there are also going to be people, people out there whose first thought about them is that this motherfucker got away with the same thing that someone else did to me, um right. and like right. those people deserve a voice too.
2: Yeah. I mean, I remember, I remember that it was really strange. Cause when I met, met Melissa, she's somebody that the moment you put a camera in front of her and people hear her voice, 90% of the response is, I hate the way she sounds. And I was just like, God, like everywhere you go, this picked on kid um, can't hide kind of like Mike Tyson early on. Like that voice is just such an unbelievable bullseye for mean bullies to, to go after. And what I found out like beyond the Roger Mayweather thing is this is somebody who lived with abuse their entire life. And the moment I brought cameras in to tell her story, she wouldn't talk about it. She just clammed up. And I was like, I, I don't like you were saying a bit with your family stuff. I'm like, I do want people to hear this because I want people who are scared to talk, to see her courage, to talk about it and to know that they can talk and to know that people will listen to this. And that men will know there's a fucking consequence to doing this to somebody. Even if you're as powerful as Roger Mayweather with the most marketable athlete in the world generating gazillions of dollars. You can't just do this to somebody who is sort of at the fringes of boxing. And the only way I could get her to talk was that she had a, she had a frame in her small apartment in Brooklyn of every class photo from kindergarten to 12th grade of her. They were all lined up like twelve girls, and I asked if we could go into her room. And we went into her room, and I asked her to grab the piece of the the, the frame, and ask where abuse started in her life. And that just she went straight to the six-year-old, and then she I said where did it stop, and she went to the the eleven-year-old, and and started talking about it. But then it was it was okay to talk about, and this is what's weird about journalism is vice wouldn't run any of that because they said it it was just too uncomfortable and dark. And me as so a fucking freelancer dropping in on, I was like, go fuck yourself. Like this is really important to share with people, but they're like, it's not going to get clicks. It's just going to be dark. It's going to be depressing that there's this whole cycle of violence in her life and abuse. And it just keeps following along. Um, um, uh, you know, like it was a very—I was very aware that the culture of vice at that time, from my point of view, prejudice point of view, was very emotophobic about trying trying to have some of those kind of voices heard. And and we heard later that there was a lot of culture of some pretty right. fucked up shit at vice. Um, but no, it's I—I I don't know. Like I I just felt very conflicted with what was happening with Kobe and and Mayweather. And, and I'm conflicted about, how, I don't know how you address it. I, I agree with you, like people who are aggrieved, I, I want their voices to be heard and not shut down. But at the same time, I remember a lot of people with me talking about Tyson or, or doing profiles about him, like, don't make him sympathetic. This is a rapist. This is a, an incredibly um, destructive person in people's lives. He said he did several worse things than rape Desiree Washington to Jim Gray you know don't make him sympathetic, don't assist him in being sympathetic but i I don't I don't know what the right play is. I don't know exactly what our role should be at times because like, it does seem to shift from person to person a little bit. All right, last question. let's yes, go sir. a little bit a little bit lighter. Oh, okay That was dark enough. Um, if you become Czar of boxing and I'm willing to vote for you to become that, what is the fight that you would most want to watch in 2020? that you can magically force people to do Uh,
0: by fiat. Um, Yes. Yes. Look, it's, uh, I'm not going to get too, too hipster on this. It would be Spence Crawford. That's the fight that, that I I honestly think that's the, the best fight in boxing. I can get creative. There are fights I love, but that's the fight that, and, and that's also the one that I think faces the most, obstacles because of pbc and top rank and also honestly because as much as within boxing we want to call these guys huge stars they're not yet so they can't generate the kind of pay-per-view money probably to to incentivize pbc and and top rank to work together and that's neither company's Mm -hmm. fault it's just that they probably look at the they run the numbers and or look at the projections and suspect oh this fight won't be worth us pulling out all the stops and working together but damn that's the i mean that's that's the fight to crown like no one has been the uh a really there hasn't been a great welterweight in charge of that division since floyd there have been you know yeah, no. manny has been back and forth obviously guys have risen and fallen but this would be the fight that puts someone in that position again it would and and obviously that that, that that's that's now the that's that's boxing's real glamour division. I don't care about... I mean, I do care about the resurgent heavyweights. They're fun. That's great. But this is where you get the best mix of, of you know, of appeal and talent. Who wins the fight, in your view? How does that fight play out? It's really tough to call. I... I'd... I favor Crawford. I think he is. Mm. I think like I test wise, I think he's the best in the world. Um, I I understand the, I understand the people who say, look, he hasn't proven it yet, especially at welterweight. Uh, He doesn't have the wins. I think, you know, Jeff Horn is probably a better win than he gets credit for, but still somebody he should have beat. And he did. And he looked good. Um, But he just, he has a mean streak. He is the adaptability. He has, he's, he, I, I believe in him. And it like, I think he would figure any anything out, and it doesn't. And he takes risks that I guess, especially against somebody like Spence. You saw, I mean, he he messed around with that Lithuanian with Kavilauskas, and yeah, yeah. but look at how he responded. He it, it just brought out another un, un, like another kind of venom in him. I think that he's he he would. I think he would win.
1: Yeah, I think I think
2: you're right. Um, I get to force you by my own fiat to have two years to write one boxing biography, who would you choose to write it about?
0: Oh, I think because of, you know, my, my experience, I would have to do it on Pacquiao. Um, hmm. Even though I would go into it with a lot of trepidation. Um, I, I really don't think that his political career is, is, um, you know, is good for his legacy, at least in the Philippines. I think here in the States, we don't, Understand much? Generally, don't understand much about it, and think that he's just a really super guy who wants to help people. And I think that is true. But the institutions of Philippine government aren't really built built to help people do that, even if they genuinely want to try. Um, and I don't know if, as much as I'd love to believe that he's the guy to turn it around, I don't. I don't believe that right now. Um, so he's. Um, I, I don't. It sucks to say and politics have brought down some other you know some basketball heroes there not in some fatal way like they aren't still beloved as basketball players but they you know people remember that when they were senators it was it wasn't great um and so anyway i i wouldn't really relish the opportunity because i think that it's i i, I it's one of those things you still love manny because of the fighter he is and has been throughout his career and all the things he's done in the ring, the way that he uplifted the country. And really, I mean, I saw, I think my book did better because of Manny Pacquiao. I think people cared more about a story about Philippine basketball because they had, they were, they had already seen Manny, you know, when the book by the book came out in 2010. So this is prime, you know, right after, you know, shortly after the Cotto fight, maybe, you know, around Josh Clady, Margarito time when it was, when, when he was, when he was pound for pound number one, probably because Floyd hadn't really come back for real yet. Um, and it, so anyway, he, he uplifted people in so many ways and has this great legacy, but there's also a side to it that is, uh, I think negative. Uh, and, and you would have to write about that in the biography. Um, but still, uh, that's that, that I think that's the story I could do the best job with out of anyone in boxing.
2: Rafe, thank you so much. I've taken up so much of your time. I apologize for that, and I really appreciate it. This was this was uh, really edifying and fun.
0: My pleasure, man. It's fun to have, like, um, I don't know, what feels
2: like a real conversation on a podcast. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcón Suebi, Dolgan Media, Myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and our audio editor is Anda Salaji. Thanks for listening.